Hey, another great episode of Roundup is coming up next. If you like what you heard, please go online to redsearadio.org and donate, become a monthly sustaining member, and keep us on the air. Thank you and God bless. Good morning. It is Wednesday, January 5th, 2022. I cannot believe that we're already talking 2022 since we had so much fun in 2020 and 2021. You're listening to the Red Sea Roundup. I'm your host, Deacon Mike Bobay. Thank you for joining us. Today, as always, we have a great show planned for you. In the second part of the show, Dr. Thaddeus Romanski and I will be talking a little bit about what led up to Vatican II and what Vatican II was trying to accomplish, and we'll take a little bit of time to look at the documents that came out of Vatican II, especially the four major constitutions, and take a look at how they responded to what the council was trying to address. But as always, we want to start out... Welcoming all our listeners here in the Brazos Valley on KEDC 88.5 FM Hearn Bryan College Station. And a shout out to our Central Texas listeners on KYAR 98.3 FM, Lorena Waco. And hello to you, all our listeners in Palestine on KINF 107.9 FM. The show this morning is live. Uh, feel free to give us a call if there's something you want to share about what's going on in your parish. Uh, numbers 85, Love Red Sea. That's 855-683-7332. And this morning I am joined in the studio by our president, Dennis Maka. The crowd goes wild. The crowd goes wild, but he did not unmute his microphone. Good morning, Deacon Mike. It's so nice to have you back here in the studio. It's been a month since we've seen you here in the studio, but we're very happy to have you here to start off our new year for Red Sea Roundup. Wonderful to be here. And of course, I'm also joined by Dr. Thaddeus Romanski, our station manager, general director, and the guy who makes most things run around here. Thaddeus, how are you this morning? Very well, Deacon Mike. You're you're too kind. I've been told that before, but people (laughs) were just being nice. Oh, yeah. (laughs) You're trying to turn over a new leaf for 2022. Exactly. (laughs) New Year's resolutions. I can tell. uh, Which I've never been a firm believer in. I think that um, we should have continuous resolutions to be a better person than we were the day before. And I think when we start setting goals for a year that we know pretty much we're probably not going to achieve anyway, we're basically defeating ourselves. And so I think it's always a good idea to keep in mind that God calls us to be who he created us to be. And every day is us working on how to accomplish that. We've met the enemy and he is us. That is exactly it. Most of the time, we're the ones that are causing all of our problems. (laughs) Uh, with that in mind, um, we have ended the year of St. Joseph. It ended on December 8th. Yes. And um, during the year of St. Joseph, uh, Pope Francis actually declared the year of the family. Um, 
He called it the year of the Amoris Laetitia family because uh, it was announced on the fifth anniversary of the uh, publication of Amoris Laetitia. And I thought since we were doing the prayer of St. Joseph during the year of St. Joseph, Mm -hmm. it might be a good idea to open the show with a prayer for the family. And uh, you've probably heard this prayer before if you have listened to Trey Cashin on his show, The Mystery of Parenthood. Yes. And so um, why don't we begin in prayer? Very good. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. 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 Lord God, from you, every family in heaven and on earth takes its name. Father, you are love and life. Through your Son, Jesus Christ, born of woman, and through the Holy Spirit, the fountain of divine charity, grant that every family on earth may become for each successive generation a true shrine of life and love. Grant that your grace may guide the thoughts and actions of husbands and wives for the good of their families and of all the families in the world. Grant that the young may find in the family solid support for their human dignity and for their growth in truth and love. Grant that love, strengthened by the grace of the sacrament of marriage, may prove mightier than all the weakness and trials through which our families sometimes pass. Through the intercession of the Holy Family of Nazareth, grant that the Church may fruitfully carry out her worldwide mission in the family and through the family. We ask this of you, who is life, truth, and love, with the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. And I think in a way that prayer speaks to what we were talking about just a second ago, the fact that, you know, we tend to have to overcome our own shortcomings. And in the family, we have a support system that assists us in doing that. And so it's always a good idea to pray that as a family, we come together as the domestic church and work towards not only our own self-improvement, but the improvement of the family as a whole. And if we do that, we change the world. Indeed. Now, um, one thing I wanted to mention, just in case everybody has already thrown their tree out on the curb, I went for a walk this morning and noticed that there are several trees already laying next to the trash cans. And the thought came, but Christmas isn't over yet. Mm-hmm. And um, that's pretty good, though, that there are that there are trees that made it already this long. Oh, uh, yes, because uh, I am quite sure some of these trees came down on the 26th because, I mean, if you're going to start at Thanksgiving or even before Thanksgiving celebrating Christmas. Tell me about it. You it's mean just too long. You mean Christmas doesn't start when Walmart puts out their Christmas stuff? No, if that was the case, it would start in August. <laughs> Valentine's Day. Happy yes, Valentine's Day, everybody. Right. <laughs> no. Um, My wife went to Target on December 24th. And in the rear where they had had a large Christmas area, special occasion area, they, had al- they were already putting out Valentine's materials. Well, I, I mean, nobody's going to buy Christmas stuff on 24th. Uh, well, that's not true. I do. I all actually, the time. I actually tried to we buy were, some. We were buying and, Christmas presents on the December twenty yes. fourth. Uh, but growing up, uh, we never put our tree up till the twenty fourth. Yeah, uh, it was decorated before we went to midnight mass, and mm. then when growing up, we put our tree out on Gaudaute Sunday. Yeah, and then now we've the last few years we've been putting it up on December twenty fourth. Mm. We got a we, we uh, got a rather 
slight tree this year because there wasn't a whole lot left <laughs> on December 24th. Yes. Uh, I guess we could have gone shopping for the tree before the 24th. We didn't we didn't game plan that out. Yes. That well. Next year perhaps uh, of course hopefully the selection will be better next year too yep. because supply chain issues. No, we decided we're going bit, full secular next year. We're going to start we're going to start on October 31st. <laughs> <laughs> this waiting stuff is for the birds. Exactly. But uh Waiting is part of our Catholic yes, tradition. Yes, it is. Yes, uh, it is. Which is the whole point of the season of Advent, as we talked about. But um, I wanted to talk a little bit about why Christmas is actually still going on, mm. especially mm-hmm. in the church. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's interesting when you look at the past that um, there were certain uh, of the churches in the Western uh, in the Catholic Church that actually celebrated Christmas at Epiphany rather than on the 25th. Mm-hmm. And so um, it has always been understood that the reason for the gifts is actually the Magi coming and bringing gifts to baby Jesus. Precisely. And, and so... Um, this is where the tradition of the 12 days of Christmas came from, that you would give gifts for a period of 12 days commencing at Christmas and ending mm-hmm. at mm-hmm. Uh, Epiphany. But it's fascinating to me that when we celebrate the Epiphany in the church, we don't usually talk about this quite as much, but those of us that do the breviary, the pray the uh, divine office, um, you will notice that when we talk Epiphany, we're not just talking about the coming of the Magi. We're talking about the coming of the Magi, the baptism of the Lord, and the wedding feast of Cana. Mm. Because again, the word Epiphany or manifestation right. means Jesus revealing himself as God. Yes. And so the first revelation was at the coming of the Magi when they recognized him as the new king. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But it was also at the baptism of the Lord when the Holy Spirit came down and the voice of God was heard saying, this is my beloved son, mm-hmm. which was the second manifestation. Right. And then, of course, the wedding feast at Cana when he performs his first miracle Correct. is the third manifestation of the glory of God present in the world. Right. And so the church has, for centuries, celebrated the idea of Epiphany even more rigorously than they celebrated Christmas for the first thousand years. And so we see this emphasis on Epiphany having been replaced a little bit by Christmas, especially through the secularization of the celebration. And so it's helpful for us as Catholics to be mindful of the fact that the importance of Christmas is emphasized through the Epiphany. And so when we talk about what is it that we're celebrating at Christmas, well, it's God becoming man, but also God revealing himself as man and God so that we know what it is that we're celebrating 
And so I think it's important for us as Catholics to at least acknowledge. And, and as a nod to what we're going to discuss in the second half of the show, the fact that Christ reveals man fully to himself. Yes. Right? As Gaudium et Spes 22, exactly. one of the documents from Vatican II, so beautifully proclaims. Yes, and this is, again, one thing that, you know, the Church has emphasized, especially through the documents of Vatican II, that we cannot lose sight of the fact that we do not know who we are if we do not know who Jesus was. Because Jesus is what man is intended to strive for. Mm -hmm. And so our identification as human beings is ultimately revealed at the epiphany. Right. And so, uh, again, it's absolutely wonderful that the church continues to remind us that Christmas isn't over yet. Right. That we are still celebrating. And in a liturgical sense or a uh, traditions sense, you know, there there's a tradition of keeping your Christmas decorations out, observing it all the way till the presentation of the Lord, February 2nd. So y'all got a whole month still. <laughs> February 2nd. And... Uh, I think uh, that uh, when we look at the history of the celebration of Christmas and all the hoopla that we hear about, well, we don't really know when Jesus was born and we don't know when Epiphany was, we don't know any of these things, the church has always maintained that faith is not about knowing. Faith is ultimately trusting. And that if we trust that what has been revealed to us and what has been practiced through the life of the church, that we can be assured that it is true. And our celebration of Christmas is not about, is the date exact? Our celebration of Christmas is, did Jesus become man and enter into the fullness of what it means to be a human being? And also what it means to have a loving God who sacrifices everything for us. Yeah, and that's, that's going to be the key point of the Second Vatican Council is to reintroduce the world to that very, those very truths. So that's what we're going to tackle in the next segment. Right. So I hope everyone will uh, join us for the second segment when we talk a little bit about the history that led up to Vatican II and the documents that came from it. Please join us on the other side, and we'll be right back. And we are back. You're listening to the Red Sea Roundup. And uh, as promised, uh, Dr. Thaddeus Romanski and I will be talking a little bit about what led up to Vatican II and what the documents, especially the four major constitutions, were trying to accomplish. And uh, one of the things that uh, 
we need to talk about, before we talk about Vatican II, is what's referred to as the Enlightenment. And uh, many of our listeners probably have heard the term, but probably don't know exactly what we mean when we talk about the Enlightenment. And uh, being a student of history, that is, <laughs> fill us in. Oh, why do you have to set me up like that, Deacon Mike? Um, yeah, the Enlightenment, um, just in a nutshell, is a is a philosophical, intellectual movement. I would say mid-16th century to you know, through the 18th century, concentrated France, Germany, Scotland, and England's North American colonies or the United States. So I'm going to throw some names out there of philosophers and thinkers that probably that listeners might be able to kind of grasp onto and sound familiar. So Rene Descartes at the very at the kind of the beginning of the period. I think I think therefore I am. Immanuel Kant, uh, Hegel, those are two German philosophers. Denis Diderot, Voltaire, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, uh, some French Enlightenment thinkers. David Hume, maybe a little less known to the public. He's a, kind of the principal Scottish Enlightenment thinker. And then I think you could put Benjamin Franklin and Thomas Jefferson in that group of Enlightenment figures in uh, the United States or, the, or North America. And I think just to kind of sum up the Enlightenment, well, what's its you know project? It's an emphasis on human reason, that human reason can uh, penetrate the mysteries of nature. So nature was another key point of emphasis, um, that nature can be explained through mechanical or mechanistic laws. So I think maybe you could even tie back into what's typically called the scientific revolution of the sixth, the, the entirety of the 16th century, stretching back into the late 15th century, but somebody like a Newton, okay, developing his, his um, laws of motion, laws of ther thermodynamics. Um, human liberty, human freedom, uh, equality, that all people are endowed with natural rights, that's from our own Declaration of Independence. Objectivity, I think, an emphasis on uh, that there, there's an objective reality outside of the human mind that that human mind can there then you know experiment on, study, learn and understand, and develop those laws around. You have a strand of thought that, you know, emphasize religious tolerance uh, that, and that's a response to the religious conflicts of the, of the 16th century, the 15th century coming out of the Protestant Reformation, but sort of an, an attitude of, you know, let's, let's stop trying to, to declare one type of religion uh, true or absolute, and let's just uh, kind of agree to disagree. I'm putting a shorthand on it. But there's also this uh, strand, I would say, of religious faith being viewed as superstition, um, completely invalid. I think Voltaire would be a uh, Voltaire and Diderot would be good examples of that attitude. 
Um, and and something that's very much, you know, in the air to, in our day and age, natural philosophy or what we would call science today, over and against religious faith. That natural philosophy is more dependable than religious faith. And then I think the last thing I would put in there would be probably skepticism, the emergence of a, of a skeptical uh, worldview, skepti- skeptical about truths that can't be demonstrated through reason. But the thing I find interesting is that you really cannot put anyone in the Enlightenment movement into a box because you had so much, you know, the beginning of humanism where, you know, we don't need a God. We, you know, human beings are the center of uh, everything. Materialism, which, mm-hmm. you know, everything in the material world is basically the only thing that we can count on. Right. But so many of them were deists who, you know, believed that there was a God. He just wasn't active. And so, you know, it was such a broad uh, philosophical movement Mm -hmm. with so many moving parts Mm -hmm. that, you know, really did not coalesce into anything. It was more moving forward without a true goal. Yeah, and I think sort of along those same lines, I you clearly have it coming down out of the Protestant Reformation's emphasis on the individual believer's privilege to interpret Scripture and read the Bible and therefore come to faith through their personal encounter with, with the Word of God. I think an emphasis in the in the Enlightenment on what can the individual human's mind appreciate, cognate about, and and assent to through through the use of reason and its faculty, and and therefore there's this you know this aversion to uh, assenting through faith to certain religious tenets or a set of religious dogmas, and rather it's the individual human being's experience and their their intellect their intellect interacting with that objective material world. And so then material realities are more privileged than philosophical or spiritual realities. Does that Make sense? Yes. Uh, and I find it interesting because that was so much part of that, and yet Luther's opinion on reason <laughs> was rather derisive. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, the Protestant movement, again, much like the Enlightenment movement, was not one thing. No. And so, uh, but also one thing I wanted to bring up is that the Protestant movement was as much political as it was religious. That so much was tied into who was in power. And so Protestantism was trying, well, at least on the political side, was trying to move away from the church authority and give the authority back in part to the secular authorities. 
And so this was also a push against, you know, the role of the church in government, because up to that point, so much of government was interlinked with the authority of the church. Yeah, no doubt. I think that's very important to understand about the Protestant Revolution, that uh, it was very much the—there was certainly an important element of it was the German princes, because remember, Germany is not a united nation-state at this time in this mid-16th century. It's the Holy Roman Empire with an emperor governing these collection of lords and dukes and uh, who are vassals to him, but have have a certain measure of their own uh, authority as well. And they sometimes chafed under his his authority and especially having to pay taxes and give military service to him and and the like. And so they were they were very interested in trying to get out under the from under the thumb of the Holy Roman Emperor who was who whose authority was was endowed upon him through through the church. And so if they could uh, instead take up this new strand of Christianity that rejected the authority of the Catholic Church and the Pope, well, then so much the better for them in making their their political case, yeah. And so they were happy to support Luther in in his his criticisms. Yes, and uh, one of the things that we don't often think about is how this ultimately led to the increase in democracy in government's because the people revolted against the authority of the civil authorities and the royalty that has uh, so long been associated with the Holy Roman Empire and uh, the church. So out of all this enlightenment and all this movement, we see this increase in democracy, uh, the French Revolution and uh even the Magna Carta in uh, England and all these movements slowly away from uh, the divine authority of kings Mm -hmm. to the populace being in control of their own destiny. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes, and I think then we we start to move into um, the 19th century with after the end of the French Revolution and you have some you know, two two very important thinkers that come on the scene in the 19th century, Charles Darwin and the, the, the flowing of Darwinism out into all sectors of society. So this, this emphasis on um, natural selection, the, sur- the survival of the fittest, um, and the evolution of the natural world from more uh, simple forms to more complex forms, what that over time had the effect of doing is th- those notions influenced other areas of thought. And so you started to have um, higher higher confidence and investigations into how do, how do ideas e- evolve and that clearly human society and its and its ideas and its governing values, well, they should be evolving over time as well. As well, 
and also notions like uh, social Darwinism that said the societies should be looking to breed out of their populations the the weakest or the least intellectually competent and so then that leads into into things like um, eugenics okay which Margaret Sanger the founder of Planned Parenthood was a was a major proponent of eugenics in the United States and it's actually the Nazis in Germany in the 1930s who are very influenced by the American eugenics movement of the early 20th century well, that, those are all of a piece from the influence of Darwin. I'm not trying to um, poison the well of, of Darwinism by right. linking him to these these other movements, but that's the that's the intellectual um, genealogy, right? And again, and then, and then Marx was the was the other person. But we'll come back to him. Go ahead. I uh, just want to remind everybody you're listening to the Red Sea Roundup, and this morning, Dr. Thaddeus Romanski and I are talking a little bit about what led up to the Second Vatican Council and what the documents of the Second Vatican Councils were attempting to address right. uh, due to the uh, what was leading up to it. And I think one of the other things that we need to talk about, you mentioned Marx and the eugenics uh, movement. Um, one of the other things that was notable is that not necessarily as a result of the Enlightenment or a result of uh, the change in governments and these sort of things, but we had two major world wars, which uh, is something the world had not... Very much wanted to talk about that, yeah. Yes. And so that also played into... Vatican II. Mm -hmm. Very much so. Very so, much so. Give us a little background on uh, just briefly on the two world wars and Yeah, I think I don't think that enough attention gets given to that, the historical situation of when Vatican II occurred that we have to remember that despite all of these so we've given you this kind of intellectual landscape that is happening at the high levels of society. But at the same time, Europe, the United States, the West generally, still in the 19th century, first half of the 20th century, are arguably ostensibly Christian societies. It's still the vestiges of Christendom. I think you would agree. Yes. Certainly the general population was very, very still influenced and shaped by by uh, Christianity and its, and its creeds. And... Yet, from 1914 to 1918, a world war erupts that kills 9 million soldiers, 9 million uniformed, not to mention the civilian populations killed in Russia, the Armenian genocide in Turkey, um, other uh, civilian populations in Germany that die as a result of the blockade by the, by the British. So there's this horribly devastating and destructive war, wipes out an entire generation of young men. And then Europe does it again 20 years later, 1939 to 1945, and it's even worse. And I, I believe that there was a deep, a deep down, maybe an, an inchoate, you know, you, could, you can't put words on it, sense of 
if, if these if these Christian societies, if the Christian society that I live in is doing doing this, blowing itself up twice in the space of thirty years, creating the untold destruction, how is this how is this Christianity thing working out? Maybe it's not. I think it bred a level of skepticism in huge swaths of the populations that had not been there before, and an exhaustion maybe with um, the with the cultural heritage that they had been born into. And then what comes out of the Second World War? How does it end? Well, with the atomic bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and then the Cold War beginning between the Soviet Union and, and the United States and its allies. And believe it or not, the, Vatican, the Second Vatican Council opened on October 11th, 1962, and I, I may be getting this slightly wrong. It was either the very day of or two, two days before, I think, that President John F. Kennedy had his first meeting with the XCOM, the Extra Special Committee, looking at the fact that the Soviets were planning to put nuclear missiles into Cuba in the beginning of the Cuban Missile Crisis. So the beginning of the Second Vatican Council is taking place when the world is on the precipice of nuclear Armageddon. You can't tell me that that is not shaping how the church, the council fathers are, are considering presenting, representing the Catholic truth to the modern world. So sorry for that diatribe. No, 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 it's perfectly fine because it does set the tone for what we're going to be talking about for the rest of the show. And that is given this history, the church is asking itself one how are people going to view the church mm-hmm. from here going forward? Two, how is the church going to talk to the world right. from here going forward? Because they're no longer in a position where, you know, the church speaks and people do what the church says. Right. It's, it's not E.F. Hutton anymore. It's not E.F. Hutton anymore. But also, how do we re-engage those people that have basically tuned out of the mass mm-hmm. because I'm still old enough to uh, remember that, you know, going to mass was the priest saying mass and a whole bunch of uh, people sitting in the back praying the rosary till the bell rings. Mm. And so the emphasis on what's going on at the mass and how do we communicate this to the people actually attending, mm-hmm. how do we do this? Mm-hmm. And so also then, what is the proper understanding of Scripture? Because again, the Protestant Reformation yeah. has clouded somewhat how do we interpret Scripture? Now, this is not talking about, you know, I'm reading the Bible and God speaking to me. I'm talking about if there is a question about how this passage affects the world, who's the last word on this? Is it the individual guided by the Holy Spirit, or is it the church endowed with the keys? <laughs> and so uh, all these things are the basis for the whole idea behind Vatican II. How do we address all these things? And, you know, 
you're calling together all the bishops in the world. You're calling together theologians, which is one of the things that was sort of new in Vatican II, that the theologians played a major part in the formulation of some right, of these documents. Right, right. And also, how do we then address all yeah, these can things? I, can I Go right ahead. jump off of what you yeah. mentioned about the theologians? Um, because the the theologians and the theolo the theologian class had had a new uh, a greater role to play in the in the life of the church, partly through the encyclical of Pope Leo the Thirteenth. Um, I think it was um, Eterne Patris. I may be mis mis uh, naming the encyclical, uh, but that encyclical where he gave a kind of a, pri a privilege to Thomas Aquinas as the general doctor, the common doctor of the church, and encouraged uh, a, a resurrection uh, or a, a venerating of Aquinas and seeing him as a, as a good model for dialogue with modernity. So this is like the late 19th century. Um, he, he, by extension in that document, I believe, gave more, uh, a greater role to, to theologians and th theological study in the life of the, in the life of the church. And then I, I also wanted to mention too, I think it's important when we're looking at the documents of the Second Vatican Council, that um, the, the fact that they are these long treatises on, uh, they're, they're sort of philosophical, intellectual, and theological essays. They they aren't really lists of um, um, condemnations. Yeah. Yes. I think that's partly a result of kind of beginning with Leo the Thirteenth, and then through the popes after him in the first part of the 20th century, the popes themselves had started to move away from publishing bulls, which were, uh, thou shalt not do this, you will do this, to things like Rerum Novarum, which is a philosophical treatise on the teaching of the social teaching of the church, these these longer um, essay-like encyclical letters. Well, the documents of the, Vat of the Second Vatican Council much more reflect that way of the church engaging with the modern world, which had already begun in those, in those popes. So... I wanted to worth. read something from uh, Gaudium et Spes, which addresses, we were talking about humanism and uh, the effect on, you know, how do we define reality? How do we uh, make sense of the world around us? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And uh, this is uh, from Gaudium et Spes. Many look forward to a genuine and total emancipation of humanity wrought solely by human effort. They are convinced that the future rule of man over the earth will satisfy every desire of his heart. Nor are there lacking men who despair of any meaning to life and praise the boldness of those who think that human existence is devoid of any inherent significance and strive to confer a total meaning on it by their own ingenuity alone." But the church firmly believes that Christ, who died and was raised up for all, can, through his Spirit, offer man the light and the strength to measure up to his supreme destiny. 
I think that's from the introduction to yes. Calumet's Best. Yes. And uh, again, the documents, especially Gaudium et Spes and Lumen Gentium, what they're trying to do is address all these things we were talking about. Mm-hmm. How does the church now speak to the world around us and has it something to say? Is there value in this still? Right, right. And so when we look at the documents of Vatican II, and I encourage everybody to actually read them, uh, you know, I always hear people telling me what Vatican II said, and none of it was actually what Vatican II said. <laughs> so it's important to know, one, what it is that the church was addressing, right, and how the church sees its role in the world. And there's only two things that the church has to offer in this, and one is salvation. And right. when we talk about salvation, it's a healing. When we talk about salvation, it's healing. What are we being healed from? Well, despair, because if we're all there is, all it leads to is despair. And the church says we have something to offer. Right. Yeah, Gaudium et Spes translated as hopes and joys. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, that's the constitution on the church in the modern world. world. Yes. So the church is is sitting there and thinking about what what part does God's church have to play in this new world that's characterized by rapid change, rapid movement, um, mechanistic thinking, uh, destruction, the the possible end of, of human existence as we know it, uh, and a multiplicity of conflicting ideologies that claim to be the the answer that claim to have the the key to human happiness, and the church is saying no. Yes, Christ. All... Christ is the key. Let me let me go you go one better. This is from number ten in Gaudium et Spes. Uh, the church firmly believes that Christ, who died and was raised up for all, can through His Spirit offer man the light and the strength to measure up to His supreme destiny nor has any other name under heaven been given to man by which it is fitting for him to be saved. Now, you can't tell me that that's not a bold proclamation of the gospel. It's a positive Mm -hmm. proclamation of the gospel, but it's nonetheless a bold one saying that that this is the answer. This is is your your key to the happiness that that you seek that's, that's deep inside of you. Well, and also, Gaudium et Spes addresses something that's so rampant in our world today. What gives us human dignity? Yeah. The question has to be answered, because if you do not answer it properly, we have no human dignity. Because if it's ultimately what society decides, that's shifting sand. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so the church... Right, the ch- chapter one in, in Gaudium et Spes is titled The Dignity of the Human Person. So there's an entire chapter in that document devoted to that very question. And again, the whole point of the document is how does the church speak to the world now? It used to, if a ruler did something the church thought was inappropriate, you just excommunicated him. And this was a punishment. Yes, it was. Uh, I find it always interesting that um, 
St. Augustine's uh, teacher, St. Ambrose, actually excommunicated the emperor for a while. Yes. Theodosius, yeah. Yes. And Theodosius found it to be a punishment. He willingly sat outside the church in sackcloth and ashes Mm -hmm. at the command of the pope. Mm -hmm. That was no longer the case at the beginning of Vatican II. That's right. And the the church also was living in a new... uh, political situation, let's say, where it no longer had uh, secular authorities that were governing according to church teaching or were willing to use the secular authority to uh, see that people lived up to church teaching. Yes. uh, Numerous times the Pope was basically a prisoner in the Vatican Mm -hmm. because the secular government said basically usurp what authority the Pope had for right, length right. of the time. But uh, one of the other things I wanted to talk about is the uh, second document um, and uh, on the role of the church uh, in the modern world, and that's Lumen Gentium. Yes. And again, it is a document of great hope. It is light to the world. Uh, and again, it's the church's effort to communicate to the world that it has something to offer, that a world that is slowly moving to an idea that we don't need the church anymore because we're in control of our own destiny. The church is saying, whoa, first with Gaudium et Spes and the idea that you know we don't know who we are mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. unless we know Christ, but also... What is it that the church has to offer? Yeah, let me just read you the beginning. This is this is paragraph one of Lumen Gentium, the dogmatic constitution of the church. So Lumen Gentium in Latin is light to the nations. So when it says, Christ is the light of the nations. Because this is so, this sacred synod, gathered together in the Holy Spirit, eagerly desires by proclaiming the gospel to every creature to bring the light of Christ to all men a light brightly visible on the countenance of the Church. Since the Church is in Christ like a sacrament or as a sign and instrument, both of a very closely knit union with God and of the unity of the whole human race, it desires now to unfold more fully to the faithful of the Church and to the whole world its own inner inner nature and universal mission. Christ is the light of the nations. The Church wants to bring that light to the nations, it's what it's. So the church is t- is reflecting on how how do we do that? How should we how should we do that? Yes, uh, ultimately, what is the role of the church as far as evangelization is concerned, and how is it presented, and how should it be received? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think something beautiful about Lumen Gentium is that's often seen as a used as a criticism of it that the last chapter of Lumen Gentium is actually on the Blessed Mother. Why? It wasn't to subordinate the Blessed Mother. It was to say that the Virgin Mary is the model of the Church. She is the Church incarnate, in, yes. in a sense. And so the, there's a, it's a wonderful explication of her role in the economy of salvation and how she is what the Church is meant to be. She embodies the Church. Yes. And uh, so... When we look at Lumen Gentium and 
the church presenting itself basically anew to the world. And uh, again, it was necessary, given the situation in the world, for the church to address what role does the church now play, given the direction the world is moving into. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, I want to remind our listeners, you're listening to the Red Sea Roundup, and uh, Dr. Thaddeus Romanski and I are talking a little bit about the history leading up to Vatican II and the four main documents. And uh, we're running close to the end, so I want to move to Dave Verbum. Okay. Uh, we'll, <laughs> I was hoping we'll, you were going to go to Sacrosanctum Concilium, but that's, that's fine. We're going to end with Sacrosanctum okay. Concilium, okay. Uh, the, and uh, we'll uh, talk about Dave Verbum fairly briefly. Yeah. Because um, we've talked about the Protestant Reformation and also the humanistic aspect of biblical interpretation, mm-hmm. the fact that the individual can read Scripture and be inspired to interpret it the way it should be interpreted. Mm-hmm. Well, that has never been the way that the church has looked at Scripture. And so De Verbum, again, um, laid out how we are to see Scripture, and it's always in context with the magisterial authority of the church and the tradition of the church. Because Right, and I, th- and I wanted to just jump in and say, and that's why the kind of the subtitle of De Verbum is On Divine Revelation, because divine revelation isn't just the written Scripture, it's also the magisterial authority of the church and tradition. Right, because if you have no magisterial authority, you have no Scripture, because someone has to say this is what is, and right. this is what is not right. Scripture. That's right. And so anyone that has a Bible in their hand ultimately trusts the magisterial authority of the church, that there shouldn't be more there. Right. Where, where do the table of contents come exactly. from? Exactly. And uh, it's always interesting to me when someone talks about the Apocrypha, and I mean the Apocrypha, the stuff that's not in the Bible rather than some of the other interpretation of that word. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, somebody will bring up, well, the Gospel of Mary Magdalene, the church threw that out because, you know, it just didn't like it. It should be in there. No, it's not in there because it's a Gnostic document, and the church ruled on this centuries ago. But who has the authority to rule? Mm-hmm. And so, again, the question arises, how can I trust Scripture if I have no magisterial authority telling me I can trust it? Right. But also, the tradition of the church dictates how do we then use that scripture in living out our faith. Exactly. exactly. Because without that, I have no way of knowing what do I do with what I've been given. And the perfect example of this is the Eucharist. What does the Eucharist look like in scripture? And what does it look like in the practice of the church? Well, we can look at the tradition of the church and dated back to the first century that there was already the practice of celebrating the Eucharist with a full understanding right. of the real presence. Right, right. Well, if I don't have that tradition, I can make that biblical account look like anything. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's mm-hmm. just symbolic. Mm-hmm. Well, And I think that's, that's also an example of where the renewed study of patristics 
that had begun in the late 19th century and continued through the first part of the 20th century leading up to Vatican II was very informative. Yes, uh, and again, it uh, was that emphasis by the church saying, okay, we have to go back to the tradition of the church. Right, the race all small, right. go back to the sources. Yes. Um, but anyway, this is, uh, you know, the reason behind Dave Verbum addressing, you know, some of the things, the questions raised by the Reformation, some of the questions raised by that exponential split of the Reformed churches. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. how do we deal with this? How do we deal with all this mixed interpretation of Scripture? Yep, yep. Now, the last document we want to take a quick look at is Sacrosanctum Sanctum Concilium. And that is the Constitution on Divine Worship. And uh, this is probably, to me, the most fascinating document because everything that we think Vatican II did probably isn't what Sacrosanctum Sanctum Concilium says it did. Agreed. Uh, Yeah, I wanted to—so I'll just take something like Latin, the use of Latin in in the liturgy, in the Mass— um, Vatican II did not abolish the use of Latin. It didn't even subordinate it. No. It actually said in paragraph 36, it said the use of the Latin language is to be preserved in the Latin rites. And it then a few paragraphs later, it noted a suitable place may, I'm adding that emphasis, may be allotted to the local language yes. as circumstances dictate, as needs dictate. It never. The document never said, "Throw out Latin." No, all the responses should be not only in Latin, but they should be sung. Right, Gregorian chant quote has pride of place, place in the liturgy of right. the church. So this the Sacrosanctum Concilium, I think, you know, gets us most directly to that question of was it a flawed uh, instantiation of Vatican II or a flawed interpretation of Vatican II that we're dealing with, not the not the council itself, not the documents themselves. Yes, the, and, I, and the council is the documents. Yes, and I think this is uh, the thing that we need to remember. There is no such thing as the spirit of Vatican II. Right. The Vatican II is what the documents say Vatican II is. Right. And Vatican II is over with. It's, exactly. it's done. Yes. It's, it doesn't continue on. Right. And we don't keep uh, sitting there meditating on these things, c- continuing on. Which, in a way, is exactly what Sacrosanctum Concilium was all about, uh, trying to get the Mass back to what it should be without some of the things that got added on over the centuries by right. different rites. Right. And so, again, we're trying to get it to what is the kernel mm-hmm of what the mass should be. Mm-hmm. And how do we keep it, one, reverent? How do we keep it traditional? How do we keep it meaningful? Right. And that it, if you if you take uh, Sacrosanctum, its emphasis on that the mass is the perfect prayer or it is the perfect praise of the one true God, and then you tie that to uh, Lumen Gentium's Emphasis on the universal call to holiness on the part of all the all the believer. Well, active participation, the the laity's participation in the mass with the, their whole self is part of drawing them into becoming more holy. So there's a there's a beautiful connection, a, a coherence there between those two documents. I think. Yes. 
And uh, just uh, briefly in closing, a quote from Sacrosanctum Sanctum Concilium, every liturgical celebration, because it is an action of Christ the priest and of his body, which is the church, is a sacred action surpassing all others. Yes. No other action of the church can equal its efficacy by the same title and to the same degree. Yes. Well, this has been a, a wonderful conversation, Deacon. Yes, uh, and I think that, you know, this is something that is so needed that we talk a little bit about what Vatican II actually is and what mm-hmm. led up to it so that people mm-hmm. understand this was not an accident, this was not a decision that we're going to change the church completely. This was a response to the change in the world, and how do we address it? Right. How do we maintain the role of the church in the world around us. Right, right. Go out and read those documents, folks. Read yes. those constitutions. Yes, especially Sacrosanctum Concilium. And I want to thank everybody for tuning in today. Next week, Gene Wilhelm will be your host for the Red Sea Roundup. Remember to tune in for that. Until then, when considering the many ways in which you might share your time, talents, and treasures with the people of God, always round up. Shake off. Rumors and talking. 